Welcome to another episode of Venture Unlocked, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of the business of venture capital. I'm your host, Samir Khaji. In today's episode, I'm excited to bring you Stephen DeBerry, founder of Bronze Ventures, which invests in companies that align to both financial and social impact. Prior to starting Bronze, Stephen invested at firms such as Kapoor Capital, Amidiar, and the California Endowment. Stephen also gave a very well-received TED Talk on what he coins the East Side Theory, which speaks to how societal design flaws have contributed to the lack of parity in the world. In this episode, we had a wide range of discussion about things like social impact investing, his thoughts on cheap e-commits, and why he feels so strongly about leaving his fingerprints on helping the next generation of underrepresented managers. Without further ado, let's get into the episode to hear all of that and more. Hey, Stephen. Great to have you on the show. How are you doing? I'm good. Uh, really great to be here with you, man. I'm excited to have this conversation. And, you know, you have such an interesting background, like a lot of the, the guests on our show. But you you spent most of your professional life focusing on social impact, uh, investing, research, and you were at Amidiar and Kapoor Capital, and now Bronze. Tell us a little bit what inspired your journey, both into investing and the particular thesis around impact that you've um, developed quite nicely over the last few years? I am just living my life. And the things that I experienced in my very earliest journey as as a kid really inform the way that I look at the world today. I didn't really realize it until, you know, very far along into my journey. But as a kid, my grandfather was in the entertainment industry. He was also a butcher. Uh, living in Gary, Indiana. And by virtue of that, I had, as a very young child, I saw abject poverty and I saw opulent wealth at the same time. And through the eyes of a child, it just didn't make sense, you know, to see instances where folks are living in, you know, substandard conditions or don't have food to eat and then to go to other environments in the same day where there is a surplus of Perrier water and like, you know, like just all this stuff is just confusing as a kid. And what I would say is that in a lot of ways, it's no less confusing as a very grown man who's been thinking about this for a long time and studying the issues and understanding the economics and following the money and the product flows and supply chains and so forth. And at the end of the day, you know, I think what I've come to realize is a lot of the disparity that we see in the world doesn't have to be there. It's really a design problem. And when you look at the history of how our country, um, our society were architected, you realize that a lot of the things that we view as being natural, we, 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 we don't even question them. It's just kind of like, well, this is, the world, this, this is the world we occupy. A lot of things we view as being natural aren't necessarily natural. They were constructed. And more specifically, you know, a lot of the disparity that we see was intentionally constructed. You know, we, you know, in the United States, have a society where Almost all of the physical infrastructure that we have was built during the era of legal segregation. And so the logic that went behind those designs was a logic of haves and have-nots. Some people will get access to the good housing 
other folks wouldn't. Some people would have access to education, so they could, you know, provide for themselves. Other folks wouldn't, you know, et cetera. And so we don't occupy that legal space today, but we still occupy those physical spaces and therefore the legacy of that thinking. And so what I've been really focused on with my work and in my career is, and both as, you know, career as an anthropologist and also as an investor, you know, I've played a lot of roles over time. Um, But what I've been focused on is really trying to tease out and interrogate this question of what's natural and to really just think creatively about not only what is, but what can be. Um, And it's one of the reasons I love venture capital because we get the privilege of really being able to influence, you know, the vanguard of new products, new services, new ways of doing things, and, you know, architect the world that can be as fruitful for everyone as we're able to build. That's pretty cool. You know, it's funny you bring it up because there are these massive juxtapositions that exist, sometimes in in the same communities where you go across the train tracks and you go from great wealth to poverty or near poverty. And over the last year, we've seen venture um, actually do extraordinarily well, a lot of liquidity. Liquidity, for the most part, flows into the same people and the same groups. But yet, on the other side, you've seen Main Street struggle so much, right, with people that have, you know, occupations that are restaurant, hospitality, and we haven't quite developed the right architecture or the construct to fully, you know, change this and really create parity. But it seems like technology itself can be this great leveling factor, if done right, in the type of companies that are now forming to create more parity. So tell us a little bit about Bronze and what's informed the thesis from an investing standpoint, the type of companies. And also, you know, I watched the, uh, the TED talk that you gave around, you know, this East Side thesis, which seems like one of the things that really informs the, uh, the investment model of Bronze. But maybe walk us through that a little bit. Our firm is driven by, you know, as you mentioned, our East Side thesis. And that was born out of my personal experience coming to Silicon Valley. So I, I moved here. I was working on a business in Australia in 1997. And I came here to Silicon Valley for the first time to work for Paul Allen back in the day. And I was a deal guy for him. I worked in his research lab called Interval Research. And, you know, I said I was coming from Australia. I had not seen another black person for a, a year, literally. I moved here, not from the Bay Area, but, you know, parachuted in from Australia, uh, started working in this lab in Palo Alto. And I realized that there are all these people of color in East Palo Alto. I was like, whoa, that's amazing. I want to go, like, check that out. And it turns out I had, I had a friend who was a law clerk at the time, and I started hanging out over there. And, you know, it was just, it was, it was nice to see a reflection of self, you know, and, and eat food that was familiar, you know, all that, that kind of thing. Fast forward, you know, several years, and I was managing um, a fund for a foundation. And this foundation was focused on 14 communities in California. They were all lower income communities. This fund was focused on social determinants of health. So how can we invest to make these um, lower income communities healthier places? And I'd been doing that work for a couple of years. Um, but I remember the day 
that I was sitting at my desk and I looked down on a sheet of paper and it had a list of these 14 communities. By this time, I had bought a house in East Palo Alto. So this, this, this is where the desk is sitting. So I'm in East Palo Alto. This is probably like 2001. It was a long time ago. I looked down on the desk, four, 14 cities, all low income. I'm sitting in a low income community, East Palo Alto, but like this is where my folks are. So that's where I am located. And the list of cities is like East Oakland and uh, East Merced and East LA. And there were multiple uh, of these cities, all low income, that, that had this moniker. It was, it was East something or other. And I just thought, that's curious. Like, what's that about? And didn't have an answer then, but it, it just was a puzzle that kind of plagued me for, for years, it turned out. I was, try, I was trying to figure out, like, you know, because I, I started looking around and I'm like, wait a minute, that's not just California, you know? I mean, it's like there's, there's, there's you know, east side of Cleveland and, and Detroit and Baltimore and New Orleans East and, you know, and, and Vancouver and Paris, you know, the east side of Paris is this way and East London and East Jerusalem. And I'm like, wait, th- like there's something going on about this. Long story short, I mean, it was years later. You know, I I am drawing on all of my training as an anthropologist and just trying to think big picture about systems. I realized that there was a systemic explanation for this that that made sense, which is that it had to do with particulate matter, emissions, you know, essentially smoke. Because of the general direction that the wind blows, um, you have higher particulate matter on the east sides of places. And so, again, going back to what I mentioned earlier, you know, as, as communities are architected, you know, people make decisions. And so, like, the, the metaphor that I use to describe this in simple terms is imagine that you've got a campfire um, and you've got 10 people and you need to keep everyone warm. So everyone needs to be, this, be near this campfire. But we also know that the wind is blowing to the east, and so the smoke from this campfire is gonna be blowing to the east. Now you gotta keep everyone warm. And, and so the question is, well, who's gonna sit with the smoke blowing in their face? That is essentially the sort of uh, riddle that most communities, a version of that, which shows up in different ways, but that's essentially the riddle that community design has been facing over the majority of our history. I mean, we, we still face that sort of dynamic question today. And the way that we have answered that question over time has been sufficient. I mean, we've graduated, we've been able to persist as human beings, but we're, we're not graduating with honors. Like we haven't, we didn't get the best solution to that question because the way we've answered it is we got to sit everyone around this fire. There's going to be some smoke. A couple of y'all are going to have to take one for the team, you know, and so there will be asthma, there will be cancer, but that's just sort of the cost of doing business. You know, what I've been trying to argue publicly and broadly is that there's a better way to think about that kind of puzzle. And I think it's, a, it's an instructive metaphor, maybe. Like, instead of expecting a portion of our community to just take one for the team, sit with the smoke, take all the negative effects of that, if we actually got closer to each other and sat in something like a horseshoe, so the smoke just you know, went out and didn't affect anyone. We could achieve the objective of keeping everyone warm, 
we could avoid all the negative impacts of having folks, you know, breathing in all this smoke. And it probably would be more enjoyable to just be closer to each other along the way. You know, if I think about the horseshoe, it's not that, you know, you're taking away a benefit for one side. You are just reducing some of the the negative for, you know, some of the folks that have the smoke going in the faces right now. You know, I was thinking about this a little bit as you were talking. There are things that still remain from a design architecture problem that don't work, but you decided to go into venture, right? So venture long has been an industry that has been ruled by a lot of affluent people that are investing in things that help bring more affluence. How do you view venture from your own lens and how do the companies that you invest in help create more of a horseshoe versus, you know, the folks sitting around the fire with a small group of them having the, uh, the smoke blown in their faces? You know, so I, I go back to uh, when I was being trained, you know, academically, I actually intended to be a professor, you know, when I was coming up, I was, I was early on in anthropology and thought that that's, that was going to be my end all and be all. But I was thinking about these same sorts of issues when I was in graduate school. And I hit a point where I became frustrated with anthropology as a discipline in academia because I was starting to experience these discussions as being, you know, kind of sport, fun to argue one way or another, but it wasn't really about solving the issues at hand. And I was feeling like, wait a minute, like I actually care about these solutions and I see solutions. I see how we can actually fix things. And what I noted was that not always, but a lot of times this process of repair was economic in nature. You know, you can't buy solutions to everything with dollars, but you can actually fix a lot of stuff, you know, if you, like if you have the capital. And so for me, that was the, you know, transition point. And I, I had always been an entrepreneur, so I, I understood that. But I was, I was literally in graduate school. I was at Oxford University. Uh, you know, I had a scholarship. I was running a business, a web development company out of my room at night because night in the UK was still, you know, you know, business hours here in the US. So like I had my, my hustle going. You know, I started to think about how I could be more disciplined about using business and commerce to address the sorts of social issues I was thinking about. And what I like specifically about venture is that it is in the business of creating new products, new services, new methods of delivering value. And so when I go back to the fact that, you know, a lot of the disparity that we see in our society was intentionally architected. Again, like, so, you know, era of legal segregation. The inverse is also true, which is that, okay, if that, if that disparity was architected, we can actually design intentionally for prosperity. And so if you put those two ideas together, like, hey, we can design for prosperity and we could invest in products and services in an accretive way, that points you to the east side investment thesis. What we are focused on today are the subset of businesses where we can find alignment. And the alignment that we're looking for is, you know, a business that has a product or service where each incremental unit of revenue coming into the business drives an in incremental unit of impact. And we measure that impact at the company level, 
right? And so if it's a health business or a financial services or, you know, a housing construction technology, every time we sell an instance of that thing, by virtue of the thing itself, the product or the service, we're actually creating impact. And that is today not the majority of the market, but there is a magic subset of the market where that condition is true. And when that's true, if you find that alignment, you can really focus on doing what venture knows how to do well, which is like get in, find product market fit, help scale those businesses. And by virtue of, of doing that, you're also scaling the impact. As I think about that a little bit more, it's really the intersection of capital meets technology to solve some of these design issues that have existed for a very long time. But of course, to do that, you need to have capital to deploy into these type of companies. And I think back of when you started, there were a lot of things, and you look at solo GP, a lot of people didn't want to uh, invest in solo GPs. Impact, people in various times, and even today to a certain degree, believe that if you're investing in impact, that could be incongruent to financial returns. And it, does it come in conflict? And then of course, we know the diversity. Um, issue. Even today, less than 1% of investing professionals are African-American. We're starting to see things change, but it's slow. But back then, 2000, this is what, 2016, around 2016, when you started. Tell us a little bit about that first fundraise, given all those different components. Did people really grok what you were doing? Hell no. <laughs> no way. No way. I mean, you know, this is a podcast, so people will get this over audio, but I am sitting here as a man with a face full of like a gray beard. Uh, and when I started this, I was a I was a younger man. My ideas were exactly the same, I should say. And I think that should be of note for LPs that are allocating to the young, youngest and, and new entrants to the market. You know, my ideas have not changed, um, but it has taken me a very long time to surmount those multiple issues that you just laid out. And I had many people along the way say to me, Stephen, you're such a you're such a bright guy. Why don't you just go work at a bank or go go to this platform company or, do, you know, there are much easier ways to get paid. But that was never my calling, you know. My calling is to chart a path. You know, some folks know that I had a, a period of time where I was, a, I was a pretty serious mountain climber. There's some analogy there. When I, when I climbed my very first mountain, uh, you know, it was in Tanzania, and the guide said, you can take Coca-Cola route or Uhuru route. <laughs> you know, it's like, you can take the easy route, you can take the really hard one. Um, the hard one's where freedom is. I took Uhuru route. I took the harder route to get where I am today. And I'm glad that I've taken that route. It has been slower. It has been more arduous. But the beautiful thing is that along the way, I've been able to drop some Easter eggs for the folks that will come behind on that route. And so it should be easier for them. It should be faster for them. Um, and I think those are ways that I've, I've tried to be of service. You know, that, always, that doesn't always show up in a, in a public way or on social media or, or, or whatever. But for the benefit of the long-term progress of that full slate of issues that you just raised, you know, I think we've been chipping away at those barriers. 
And so we find bronze today, I think, a more fortified institution. Folks know that we've been through the ringer. We've been battle-tested. Like, we're, we're, this, this is a veteran operation. We know what we're doing. We are competent managers. And we have a very unique, highly differentiated thesis that is yielding results. So I'm, I'm proud. It's been hard won, man. It's been hard won over a very long time. But I'm proud of the work that we're doing. I'm proud of our team that's starting to grow. Um, and I think the benefits will, will accrue, you know, certainly to the folks who are using the products and services that we're backing and the and Eastside communities everywhere, um, but also to the industry. Because I think by virtue of bronze having been around for so long, you know, there's a proof point. You know, as more folks are coming into the market, you know, we can, you know, hopefully point to the progress that we've made and that should hopefully make things easier for some some of the other folks. I hope so. And, you know, Fund One did end up at, what, $23 million. You invested in a number of companies that have actually done very, very well. And I know the performance is really good. You're on to Fund Two. Fund Two is now investing. But, you know, you mentioned some of these Easter eggs and some of this is just you know, having more people act as beacons for that next generation. Tell us a little bit about the learnings. Like, you know, you had all these variables and probably a lot of pushback from LPs and people that, you know, shut doors. Are there certain things that you learned that you can impart to somebody that might be in a similar situation? They don't look and feel like the traditional Silicon Valley GP uh, doesn't have the same maybe network, maybe a different thesis, solo. What are the things that you would, uh, you know, tell somebody getting started right now? Most important, it's, you know, it's like to thine own self be true. That's what I learned. Um, If you have a differentiated thesis, if you have a unique view of the world, hang on to that and, and don't try to conform yourself to the market. An earlier incarnation of me was, you know, folks knew me back in the day, like I had dreadlocks down to my my belt and I very much did not look like, you know, your typical venture investor. And when I was raising my first money, I think a lot of folks wanted me to have the blue blazer and look like I just came from Wall Street. And I still, to this day, get comments about that sort of thing. Well, how do you dress? That has nothing to do, 0% correlation with how my mind works. You know, and in fact, quite the opposite. When you actually talk to sophisticated LPs who've seen a lot of deals, who've seen multiple market cycles, and you ask them, how do you find alpha? What are you looking for? What they usually will say is, I'm looking for someone who thinks differently. Because there are lots of ways to buy the market if you're the LP. We know what the market is. It's like the standard, right? That's not where alpha lives, like by definition. Alpha is on the edges. And it's the folks on the edges that have a different perspective and angle and insight that the rest of the market doesn't see, which is where you find outsized returns. In my instance, it was the counterintuitive approach of looking to lower income communities for economic growth. Like the intuitive approach would say, well, that's where poor people are. They're, 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 there's not value there. There aren't economics there. When in reality, uh, you know, we talk a lot about things like the 1% or, you know, billionaires and so forth. But 70% of our GDP is consumer spending. That's everyday people everywhere buying everyday things. 
And that's where the, the, the majority of market activity occurs. And so if we actually understand what real people are doing and we understand the economics that everyday people represent collectively, it becomes more obvious by the numbers what the actual investment opportunity is there. And when you pair that with an understanding of these pre-millennium disparities that have been artificially architected, and we see that there's an opportunity to generate returns by closing those gaps, turning those disparities into prosperity, like that's a really exciting investment thesis. And I got to say, you know, in my, in my very first fund, I was trying to conform myself to what people expected. And it didn't work out well. You know, the second time around, I came back after a, a period of just really digging deep, introspecting, thinking about, you know, who am I as a man? What am I about? Why am I here? I mean, these questions, just very existential questions. And I got crystal clear on that stuff. And the funny thing, man, is that clarity led me right back to where I started, which is to the point. My, like, my ideas have not changed. I had the ideas that I'm working on now when I was 17 years old. I had those insights. And it took me the second time around, I only let two LPs into my fund. I did not optimize that fund for scale. I was optimizing for fit to thesis. And I went to these two LPs And I said, look, this ain't going to look like everyone else you see. I'm not that. Like, you need to be good with that. I am a competent manager. I know what I'm doing. I don't need anyone looking over my shoulder or telling me how to manage my business. I know what I'm doing. What I need is enough capital to run and prove the thesis. And I didn't wear a blue blazer to the meeting. I wore my hat. Matter of fact, I cocked it to the side when I went into the meeting. And it was just like... This is what it is. And as an LP, you have to be good with that. But I tell you what, give me this capital and I'm going to go out here and ball. Like I'm an athlete. I'm going to run after it and and I know how to win. And I wanted folks sitting next to me as partners who could believe in that and not only believe in it, like get excited by that. Like, you know, and, you know, I spent a lot of time being focused on building the early culture of our firm. And we still have that sort of mentality. Like, we're, you know, bronze is not a, a blue blazer. I mean, nothing wrong with a blue blazer. I'll rock one every now and then. But it, it's not our primary identity. Bronze is a place where people are able to be who they are, whatever that looks like. Our core value is that we think that love is a competitive advantage. And we've built a place where folks are able to come and feel connected, be themselves. And I think what that unlocks is all the value that, that, that goes unharvested because it gets caught up in misinterpretation or all the energy that goes into translating to what, you know, people think the market wants. Like, later for that, we don't have time for that. What we're more interested in is what do you see? What are your insights? What skills can you bring to advancing this Eastside thesis and uplifting the communities with innovative products and services that we have the privilege to be able to do through the capital that we deploy. And it's actually something that has been a recurring theme in a lot of the discussions I've had around this concept, these two concepts, really. One is around conviction and one is around authenticity. And it's very, very easy to 
come back to the point of, hey, I'm just going to create a product that allows me the easiest path to raising the fund, gives me the, the most lift. And at the end of the day, selling a product that I know the majority of the market will want to buy versus finding those true believers. And that t- does take a lot of conviction in your own authenticity because it is going to be harder. You mentioned the, uh, the analogy earlier about the mountain and taking the hard route. But over time, I've always found that authenticity within a manager and understanding like what is your superpower? What are you here to solve? Why are you going to do it better? Actually, over the long term, results in far better returns, far better impact. But as I also look at that, right, so you're, you're investing in these companies that are solving these issues that a lot of the folks in mainstream VC may not be aware of, may not understand, companies that may not get you know, the same level of co-investments or follow-on funding. Has that in any way impacted how you think about your own portfolio construction, follow-ons? Oftentimes, you might be the only you know, institutional investor on the cap table. Tell us a little bit about maybe some of those things that I just mentioned. It has impacted our portfolio construction, you know, in the last fund, because as I mentioned, you know, the kind of company that we're looking for is, is rare. Good companies of any kind are rare, let's be clear. And if we're further filtering down to great companies uh, that are not only just great, you know, by the numbers, but also are, are, are great and have this alignment that I talked about between the way they generate revenue and the sort of impact that a product or service can generate. It's a vanishingly small subset of the market. It's growing uh, is the good news. But because of that, you know, it's part of why in the last fund we did not optimize for scale. We optimized for fit to this thesis. And so it was a smaller fund, $23 million. Um, It also was a fund where I was trying to prove multiple things. Um, You know, A, that this thesis would work. B, that we could find the deals that represented that thesis. But also that these are high growth companies and our objective is to to deliver 3X net DPI to our LPs. So like we want to put up real numbers. And what that translated to in terms of portfolio construction is that for our last fund, we were more concentrated. You know, we have like a dozen companies in that portfolio. You know, that means we've taken, uh, you know, bigger bets on a few of the names in our portfolio. You know, relative to many of our peers in the micro VC universe and and especially folks, you know, more at the seed stage, you know, have a much larger number of names in those portfolios. Um, So it goes back to the conviction that you talked about. This last portfolio was constructed to swing for the fence. Um, and and demonstrate our ability not only to understand the thesis, find companies that fit it, but also be able to get into deals and to be able to allocate into those high growth deals, you know, and and run with you know sort of the, the top investors in Silicon Valley, and we've been able to pull that off, you know. Fortunately, it was a high risk bet, but that is the nature of the asset class. That's what we're supposed to be doing. It, that's what venture capital is. So we took the bet. I mean, it's not over, you know. We venture's a long-dated asset class. We've got marks. We still need to deliver liquidity to LPs. But by the numbers, with the data that we're able to see today, it looks like it's working very well. I would agree with that. Having um, you know seen some of the portfolio companies you've invested in, and some of the following investing and the type of investors that 
you know, those companies have been able to attract. I want to go back to something that we lightly touched on before, which is around parity and venture capital in particular has not been full of parity over the last few years. We've seen, fortunately, the growth of the number of female investing partners, both at larger firms and also within, let's call it the micro VC world, you know, female led firms. And, um, you know, we've seen groups like All Raise. My, uh, you know, colleague Hannah Yang started a group called Women in Venture a few years ago. And those are all great things to bring lift. And we're starting to see this really, in my mind, was made more aware through things like George Floyd. We've seen groups like Black VC. What do you see as the definable trends that could really impact this on a go-forward basis to really create more lift for the next generation of, you know, let's say people of color that want to be investors? And are there structural elements that exist in venture that may in some ways unintentionally prevent it? And I'm thinking about like the GP commit, for example. Yeah, I, I think it's a it's a really important question. And I do think that we all experienced an, an important moment last year around George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, so many people who have been violated by the system in ways that reflect the very long-term, you know, uh, not just this last season, but the many years before that and decades before that and centuries before that, a violation of marginalized people that has gone at least misunderstood, vastly underappreciated. And so, you know, for my lifetime, this last spring was the period of, I think, the, the, the greatest awakening where I've had folks that I've known for a long time just say like, hey, I'm sorry, I didn't get it. I get it now, like it matters. I think that has a lot to do with the fact that we were in quarantine, on lockdown, dealing with COVID. People were sitting still and just had to, you know, had to deal. I also think that that's a moment. And what is incumbent upon us is to make sure that that moment becomes a shift. And so I think this goes to your question. How do we institutionalize, you know, the observations that people are making? And so I look at a couple of things. One is, you know, there was this rash of proclamations and announcements from corporations and you know, different parts of the economy of folks saying, we're going to move our dollars, you know, to address this set of issues. So disparity, you know, I would argue, uh, I think the two greatest issues facing our society right now are disparity of the kind we're talking about now and climate change. And so I think we need to institutionalize the movement of capital at the intersection of those two issues. And this is not a nice to have. This is existential. And I think people need to understand that. You know, I gave a talk to a, a big pension fund yesterday uh, that asked me to come in and help them think through their climate strategy. And, you know, they brought five folks in and a lot of folks were talking about the various technologies and, you know, carbon sequestration and all that. I talk about that stuff too, because, you know, I'm a VC, we invest in innovation. But the, the different um, narrative that I gave them around that is we know by the numbers that uh, we must have a transition in our society to a net zero economy. That has to happen. We know that we have a specific carbon budget to get that. We spend a little over 40 gigatons 
of uh, carbon emissions. Now we need to cut that in half by 2030. We need to be net zero by 2050. We know that if we do not do those things, there are predictable negative consequences, deforestation, melting ice cap, you know, these sorts of things. When you dig into the numbers about whether we have an orderly transition to net zero or a disorderly transition, you start to see in the same way that I talked about the breadcrumbs that led us to this East Side thesis, you start, it starts to become clear that we all have to be on the same team we all have to be coordinated and we've got to move quickly because what happens is the longer we wait to make this climate shift to net zero, the longer we wait, the more extreme our actions are going to have to be. And the more extreme our actions have to be, the higher the potential for geopolitical instability, for disruptions to food systems, to uh, increases in vector-borne diseases and on and on and on. In other words, if we don't figure out how to collaborate and work together towards these sorts of east side issues and the disparities that we're talking about and the ways they intersect all aspects of our lives, especially things like climate, things fall apart, man. Like they really do. And I do think that speaks to having more diversity of talent when it comes to uh, founders and when it comes to investors. And I, and I did want to touch on one thing, uh, and I brought it up at the tail end of my question. You know, there's this old notion of GP commit as a measure of alignment of GP and LP. And historically, that's been one to 5%. It's almost been one of these fixed institutional measures that hasn't really changed and people still have a tough time getting over. Yet, we see a number of people that are starting firms or want to start firms that are unable to do so because of those type of structural elements. You have, and, and hopefully you can share this, a very different view on your own GP commit. And like a lot of things you've done, it's different, right? It's lower than 1%. Do you think things like that are going to change where LP's mindset change? Do they need to change? How do you think about it? And how do you navigate through some of those things that just look different? I think we're seeing some themes here. And, and again, this, this East Side thesis for us shows up in a lot of different ways. It's, it's born from, you know, a piece of, one of the inputs is, you know, what are the things that we just think are natural that aren't necessarily natural, they were designed, right? That happens out in the, in the world and the way things are constructed and the way products flow and who gets them and who doesn't. It also shows up in the structure of our industry. And so one of the design elements that we just sort of take for granted as being the way things ought to be is this GP commit. Um, GP commit is the dollars that a venture capital manager has to commit to invest in his or her own fund. And traditionally, that number is, you know, like 2%. So if you raise $100 million, what it's saying is like, you've got to put $2 million of your own money into this fund. Well, here's the thing. What if you don't have $2 million? Like that design assumes that you must be a wealthy person in order to play this game. And so when I talk about, you know, sort of dropping Easter eggs in the industry, this is one example. You know, I very intentionally had, I won't, I won't, I won't state the number, but you've seen my book. Uh, I have a very low GP commit. That was very intentional because we've been through the ringer now. We've had, you know, institutional investors diligence us. 
Um, it is now an empirical fact that we have raised institutional capital with this extremely, extremely low GP commit. And so that's a comp in the market. It is. We already did it. It's too late. I had a chance to talk to, you know, there, there, there's some young GPs that are going out there, they're raising now, and I was able to tell them, well, here's how I did it, because it was a concern of theirs. And I said, you know, I won't get into all the mechanics here, but if folks are, you know, listening and struggling with this, I'd invite them to come find me and I can sort of walk them through how to, how to manage this. But I was able to sort of give them um, the roadmap of how to get around this. And that matters. Because again, when I think, when I you know pull pull the aperture back and, and let's think about what we were just talking about, as a society, man, we need all hands on deck. We need the best, the brightest, the most people working on advancing innovation so that we can solve the pressing needs facing us, like climate change. What good does it do us to keep some of our smartest folks out of the system because they aren't wealthy? Like that's. As an anthropologist, we would call that maladaptive human behavior. Like that's just, is not what you do if you're trying to thrive as a species. And we actually need everyone um, to be engaged to get us where we need to go. And so I am all about removing these silly barriers like GP commit. At the end of the day, the design, of the, so let's go back to how we think about these stuff, like through an east side design framework. There is a, actually a valid reason for having that number there. They just got the number wrong. But directionally, what the GP commit is about is alignment. Is this manager going to pay enough attention to this fund for us to have confidence that we can put dollars into it and they're gonna see it through? It's just that by the math, you know, really this should be a function of someone's net worth or some other you know, index or, or even trust. Like, do I see the vim and vigor in this manager that I know? Like someone could look at me like, there, there is no dollar of GP commit that changes my level of commitment to this Eastside thesis. People know that's my life's work, which is why I think no one batted an eye when I put the, my GP commit number out there. You know, they got to know, like, this, this cat is insane about this work. They know this is who I am. It's not what I'm doing. And so I was able to take advantage of that and get that, that comparable out there. You know, I, I think we just need to think about really what's the principle behind the design decisions that we're making as we're building systems, building markets. And I'm trying to do the work of, you know, just putting those empirical marks out there so that, you know, managers that are coming behind us, you know, have something to point to and say like, well, Braun's got a favorable GP commit and it worked out. Yeah, no, I think that's great. And, and I agree with you um, a thousand percent. In fact, I've had a, so many of these conversations in a, in a few podcasts ago, I had Matt Conwell and Roy Bahad, and we had the same discussion about thinking about it from let's not be so rigid because there are these things out there like the GP commit that are actually rational and well-intentioned in some ways. And, and you can actually wrap your head around and say, okay, I, I get it. But as a standalone measure in a vacuum without taking in the other variables around the manager, around their own backgrounds, their own drive, it becomes one of those things that is unfortunately outdated and arcane and, and, you know, creates these like blocking and barriers for really talented people to come in and invest and by extension invest in really interesting founders that, you know, Main Street VC may not be able to see. So I agree. I, I'm glad that you, you mentioned that. I do um, really enjoy that 
the analogy of Easter eggs, because those are really needed for the next generation of VC and investor and founder. So appreciate all you do. This has been a, a really fun conversation. I'm very, very happy with the, the progress of the firm, how much you've helped the, uh, the entrepreneurial community and look forward to uh, continue to see you know, what, you, what you have in store. So thanks again for being on. Thank you, brother. Always good to spend time with you. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Venture Unlocked. We really hope you enjoyed it. To learn more about Stephen and Bronze Ventures, be sure to go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify, where you'll find detailed notes in the show. While you're there, please leave us a rating and a review, as it really helps us out. And hit the subscribe button in order to get each and every Venture Unlocked episode as soon as it's released.